In George Orwell's 1984, Winston Smith recalls, perhaps it was the time when the atomic bomb had fallen on Colchester. In 1954, we imagine the events which might have led to that catastrophic disaster and then the nightmare that became Big Brother. Episode 1. Landslide. Good evening. This is the radio broadcast live from London. We immediately hand over to Whitehall for a special announcement from Deputy Leader Benson. This is a day we have all been hoping would never arrive, but arrive it has. Yesterday at precisely 1300 hours an atomic bomb was dropped on Colchester. The town was completely destroyed and all its inhabitants killed. An area stretching from the River Blackwater in the south to the River Orwell in the north has been evacuated. Among the dead was our beloved Prime Minister, Bob Ogilvy, along with his wife Margaret and their two young children. We will avenge their deaths, citizens. They will not be in vain. They mustn't be in vain. In this time of national grief, we must not rush to judge who is responsible for this heinous crime. But with recent developments over the other side of the world, it is clear who must answer our questions first. This day, January the 21st, 1954, will be remembered forever as the day we began our fight for justice, our fight for truth, our fight for society, our fight for freedom. Long live English socialism! At the end of a truly historic night, we're joined exclusively by Robert Ogilvy, the new Prime Minister. Mr Ogilvy. Call me Bob. <laughs> Bob. You have not just won, you've won with a landslide. An extraordinary night for your party, a party which many had written off. This is not about the party. Although I do want to convey my heartfelt congratulations and gratitude to all our members of Parliament both those who've been re-elected to serve their constituencies, but also the huge number of young candidates who've been elected for the first time. I must also thank the wonderful campaign team. We knew our opponents would try to fight a dirty campaign full of smear and innuendo, and we agreed to stick to looking to the future and creating policies to benefit everyone in this great country of ours. With the overwhelming mandate from the voters, we can really get to work to address the terrible mismanagement of the nation by the previous government. The huge confidence placed in us by the electorate shows that the process of healing the divisions in our nation has already begun. Was this an overwhelming vote for you, or a vote against Mary Brown and her tired and over-familiar sitting government? Erica, I know that it's fashionable to be cynical and assume that voters in this country always vote against rather than for. But it's pretty clear that a crushing victory like this was a vote for the rejuvenation of politics, the restoration of our health and education systems and investment in our people, all of our people. We 
are determined to create a brighter future for every man, woman and child in our country, regardless of race, colour or creed. Can you tell me some more details of your policies? For instance, the much-touted trade deal with Atlantica? I don't want to get bogged down in policy detail now, Erica. It's been a very long night. We'll be making an announcement in due course. Are the government of Atlantica on board? As I say, we'll be making an announcement in due course. Should Mary Brown resign? That, that is a matter for Mary and her party. I know what I would do in her position. Which is? Which is, as I say, a matter for her conscience. She hasn't been leader of her party for long, and as an unelected Prime Minister, and if I may say, as a woman, she faced an uphill struggle both in the country, but with certain unreconstructed factions in her own party. She fought the best campaign she was able to, and I have the greatest respect for her as a leader, as a politician, and as a human being who stands up for her beliefs. And now, if you'll excuse me, I need to be with my family. The children have had a very late night, and I'm sure they'll be tucked up in their beds, but I could not have done this without their love and support and the courage and commitment of my beautiful wife, Margaret, who has been my rock since the day we met. Thank you, Robert Ogilvy. Thank you, Erica. In other news, the stock market in Atlantica has rallied slightly from its historic low. The collapse in value was due, at least in part, to uncertainty over the putative trade deal, and economists on both sides of the Atlantic have warned that the markets could fall further if uncertainty continues. Well, here we are. You did it. We did it. I couldn't have done it without you and the children. Yes, I know. You said that in your acceptance speech and on the radio several times. I said it because it's true. It's just us. You can stop doing the Bob Ogilvy bit now. What's up? Well, you tell me. I rather expected you to be happy. I mean, this is what we've always wanted. It's what you've always wanted. Right. It's a little bit late in the day for you to be bringing this up, don't you think? All this grandeur, all the trappings and fripperies, this bloody house. It's everything we've been against our whole lives. Everything we wanted to tear down and now you're being swallowed up by it. Meg, I can't help what comes with the job. If we're going to be taken seriously, we have to accept a certain amount of pomp and circumstance. And finally, after 20 years of trying, we're in a position to tear it all down. And we will. Will we? I don't remember shitting on your own doorstep being part of your manifesto. I really don't know what's got into you. For 20 years, you and I have fought to achieve something. Two decades of being told that our dream was impossible. That the party would never get so much as a whiff of power... And now we've got a thumping great majority. People have become sick and tired of being ignored, defrauded and pushed around by politicians who don't care about them. We can change all that. Your speech-making again. I'm sorry. I don't want to. 
But you suddenly seem to be one of the few people I haven't convinced. You've always said that as soon as someone gets a taste of real power, they lose any sense of their ideals and become creatures of compromise and prevarication. Why should you be any different? Meg, this isn't about me. I didn't do this for me. I'm not comfortable with all this opulence and nonsense any more than you are. But if we want to change things, we have to play by the rules. This wasn't a violent revolution. I won an election. People voted for change and... I assumed you were one of them. I'm just wondering what happened to the idealistic young firebrand I married. He grew up and learned pragmatism. I miss him too. But what good did I do as a utopian no-hoper? If five years in the house has taught me anything, it's that if you want to achieve anything, you can't shout too loudly and frighten people. There it is. Meg, for God's sake, my beliefs haven't changed. Who are you trying to convince? But my methods have. We have such a wonderful opportunity to implement real, lasting change. But instead of celebrating, we're having a ridiculous squabble. All those years of fighting against, and now we can devote our energies to fighting for. Isn't that a cause for optimism? Did Benson write that for you? Oh, for crying out loud. So what if he did? Benson is a very shrewd man and a brilliant strategist. Does he share your lofty ideals? That, that's rather beside the point, isn't it? His campaigning expertise handed us a landslide. You won a landslide because people were desperate for change and because they like you. I couldn't have done it without him. I seem to have heard that somewhere before. Margaret! Now you've won your unassailable majority. Perhaps it's time for him to return to the obscurity you plucked him from. I know you haven't got much time for him, but he's been very good to us. And he's a crucial element of the party's policy-making unit. And how many people voted for him? I've never been less than transparent about his role in the party machine. Which reminds me, I can't stay here chatting all day. In our current spirit of openness, I need to go and make sure the children have started their packing. You're not serious. When you ran for the leadership, I made it very plain that in the unlikely event of you ever becoming Prime Minister, the children and I would carry on living in Colchester. I have no intention of ever calling this gilded coffin home. I've never been less than transparent about it. But surely you must see that that's impossible. At least in the short term. Think how that will look if the Prime Minister's wife and children leave number 10 on day one. You were an integral part of this campaign. If we're quick, we should be able to get back before dark. Meg, I didn't mean it like that. We tolerated being pushed around by your little apparatchik, as if we were just pieces in this big game of chess, but you've won now. The children and I want to go home. They need to get back to school. An integral part of your campaign was the need for radical reform of our broken education system after two decades of mismanagement and underinvestment. How will it look if the PM's children aren't at school? We agreed, Meg. We agreed that the children would continue their schooling here. You and Benson agreed. We're going back to Colchester to be with your wonderful constituents, without whom, as I believe you said more than once, you couldn't have done it. This leaves me in a very difficult position. We'll miss you too, Robert.
Morning. Ah, Benson. Punctual as ever. We've got a lot to get through. Indeed. But first, may I congratulate you, Prime Minister. (laughs) That's going to take a bit of getting used to. Oh, what a night. I don't mind admitting I'm slightly hungover. Precisely why I don't drink, Benson. (laughs) Mary Brown's face when the results started coming in. She looked more like she was chewing a wasp than ever. Let's not gloat, Benson. She left us an unholy mess to clean up. As well as a colossal majority. They won't be overturning that any time soon. You'll have plenty of time to get used to your new title. Any word about her successor? Well, she hasn't actually said she's going to resign yet. I can't see that she's got much choice. I know, but when you look at the bunch of morons and no-hopers jostling for her position, she might be their least worst option. I think they're dead in the water. That's what they said about us for 15 of the last 20 years. We can't be complacent. Oh, I think we can a bit. All right. (laughs) Maybe just a bit. Right. First item on the agenda. Uh, Well, we need to shape your ragtag bunch of acolytes into something resembling a cabinet. But first, you and I need to decide which of our manifesto pledges we're going to lead on. Margaret sends her best. She asked me to pass on her congratulations on your splendid campaign. Oh, she can do that in person. Uh, I've arranged a press call at four, just the friendly ones. Uh, How the nation's first family is a normal two-up, two-down and won't be changed by the sudden elevation, that sort of thing. Plays very well with female voters. Right. That's not going to be possible. They've gone back to Colchester. Why wasn't I told? I'm telling you now. It's been a busy time for them. The children want to sleep in their own beds. Can't say I blame them. Uh, So all all that campaigning as a family man was a sham, was it? Of course it wasn't. You'll need a better answer than that at four o'clock. Their lives have been disrupted enough. I I fully support them. And as Margaret pointed out, we mustn't lose touch with our constituents. I wouldn't be here without them. Much better, yes. We can work with that. Bob Ogilvie has pledged to divide his time between Number 10 and Colchester so that his family can live as normal a life as possible among the people who made him. You miss your wife and children terribly, but your commitment to the people of this nation requires that you make the ultimate sacrifice. Yeah, I like that. I do miss them. Brilliant. Keep that up. It'll go down really well. In his heart... Bob Ogilvie is a husband and father above all else, but in his head he knows that he's working for all the families who have suffered for two decades under the corrupt and incompetent government whose divisive policies have been so roundly rejected. And while you're here working for the country as a whole, your wife is working hard in the provinces to keep your government's feet on the ground. Great. People love that crap. And it fits in well with the image, Bob Ogilvie, husband and father to the nation. Shall we make a start? Of course. You're the boss. Item one. Closer trade ties with Atlantica. That's not Look, we don't have a choice, Bob. The economy is on its knees. We're no longer self-sufficient, either in agriculture or manufacturing. What message does it send if my first action in government is to go cap in hand to Atlantica? Previous administration of kleptocrats and nest feathers has broken the economy. With a mutually beneficial trade deal and ever closer ties with our friends in Atlantica, we can reap the rewards of rebuilding our export trade while enjoying the best of imports from Atlantica, all tariff-free and ultimately leading to freedom of movement of people as well as goods. That makes our bargaining position sound much stronger than it is. Obviously, that's the point. That's not going to fool anyone in Atlantica. They'll screw us to the floor. They will with that attitude. 
but don't forget all the sabre-rattling from our former friends across the channel. The nakedly aggressive rhetoric coming from certain quarters of the Eurasian administration is extremely concerning. It might be if there was any. There will be. Don't worry about that. If Atlantica thinks that we're in danger, then they'll have to help us with a trade deal. This island would make a perfect jumping-off point for a Eurasian attack on Atlantica. They're already developing aircraft which could reach the eastern seaboard from here without the need for refuelling. We have a new government, concentrating on cleaning up after the last one, with a dangerously weakened economy and an exhausted populace. As far as Eurasia is concerned, we're ripe for the plucking. Is that true? If we want it to be. Think about it. Atlantica will bend over backwards to help us if they think it's in their best interest to do so, and there's nothing like an imminent threat of war to keep the electorate on your side. I'm not lying to the electorate. No, you're not. You're showing an admirable grasp of very real geopolitical possibilities. What you're proposing is that in order to repel an invasion from across the channel, we're just going to lie down and let Atlantica do the same thing in the name of trade. Absolutely not. Our negotiating position is strong, and the belligerence of Eurasia is making it stronger. I've had a briefing from the Ministry of Defence. They're not being belligerent. Leave the details to me. I don't like this. Not one bit. I, I won't be bullied into lying. You don't have to like it. But you won the election with a promise to make the economy boom again. Was that a lie? No. All those pledges of investment in infrastructure and education and healthcare, how are you going to do that if the coffers are empty? Not by being reduced to becoming an offshoot of the Atlantican Empire. That's not it at all. Think of them as a, as a, a best friend or, or a big brother who's going to protect us. I'll think about it. Let's move on. You're the boss. Universal suffrage. Not a priority. It is for me. Not compared with sorting out the economy. Besides, it wasn't in the manifesto. Because I stupidly let you persuade me not to put it in. It's not a vote winner. People don't care. I care. How can it be right to call myself Prime Minister when so many of the people were excluded from voting? If it ain't broken... It is broken. It could have calamitous consequences. You'd be handing immense power to people who have no idea what to do with it, like, like handing a box of grenades to a toddler. That remark is unworthy of you, Benson. Everyone should have the right to participate in the democratic process. In theory, I agree with you. But you must consider the practical implications. Rights are all very well, but only if people understand the responsibilities that come with them. What are you proposing? In... Certain provinces of Atlantica... Atlantica, Hear again. me out. In certain provinces, they have literacy tests. Unless you can demonstrate a certain level of literacy, you don't get to vote. Out of the question. It's a highly efficient way of weeding out the idiots. One of our main manifesto pledges was to reinvigorate the education system after 20 years of neglect. I'm not about to penalise people for the previous administration's failure to educate them properly. No literacy tests. I must say that your cynicism is very wary. It's pragmatism, Bob. A necessary corrective to hopeless idealism. I'm not going to apologise for being an idealist. Nor should you. I only ask you to spare a thought for those of us who have to turn the sow's ear of idealism into the silk purse of workable policy. That's enough. 
universal suffrage is going to happen whether you like it or not. I would just rather have you inside the tent pissing out. You're the boss? Yes, I am. Now, let's discuss the cabinet. We could definitely do literacy tests for some of them. Not funny, Benson. I'm now joined by Mary Brown, leader of the opposition. Mary Brown, welcome. Good morning. There have been loud calls for your resignation following your calamitous defeat. Are you going to resign? I think rumours of my political demise have been greatly exaggerated. You ran what has been described by members of your own party as a woeful campaign. Surely your position has become untenable. This is not the time for internecine squabbling. We, we need to get on with the job of opposition. And after two decades in the political wilderness, the English Socialist Party has nobody on its front bench with experience of government. And that, that is a terrifying prospect. They have a huge majority. Which, which is all the more reason for having a credible opposition with strong and experienced leadership. You became leader four years ago after the last election. You have never won an election. Isn't it time for somebody else to face Robert Ogilvy at the dispatch box? I, I think continuity at a time of such political uncertainty is crucial. Bob Ogilvy is hopelessly out of his depth and reportedly enthralled to a, a shadowy cabal of unelected advisers. That's just speculation. Well, we'll see. But in the meantime, I intend to continue as leader of my party. Many commentators are saying that you're only continuing because the party is in such a dire state that there's no one else either willing or able to do the job. Oh, that's nonsense. The party is in very good health. A period in opposition is an opportunity for us to, to regroup and redouble our efforts to win power at the next election. And with me at its head, I'm very confident that that is exactly what we'll do. You believe that you can turn around such a huge majority? Experience in government is very important. When people see exactly how incompetent Bob Ogilvy's wet-behind-the-ears administration is, I'm very confident that they will come back to us. <laughs> Mary Brown, thank you. Thank you. Preparations are continuing for Prime Minister Ogilvy's triumphant return to his Colchester constituency. Listen to that. Only the boss would choose to have his office here. Who in their right mind would want to subject themselves to that god-awful racket all day, every day? He could have set up shop anywhere. It's not as if he was short of offers, but no, we're stuck in the middle of a slum. This man of the People Act is very tiresome. My dear Carl, it's not an act. He really loves those people down there. He sees enormous potential in them. And who's to say he's wrong? I rather envy them. God, you're not serious. Imagine having such a capacity for contentment. That female, down there, every day, she's in that little yard, hanging out her bit of washing and singing that song. Could you be happy with so little? What makes you assume she's happy? Unhappy people don't sing, unless it's for a paying audience. No, as long as there's a bit of something in her belly, a bottle of stout to wash it down with, and some sentimental nonsense to pass the time, she asks no more from life. She sings that pathetic doggerel, not to make a tedious job less tedious, but to express how happy she is with her lot. She, like the rest of her class, doesn't worry about the weighty matters of the day because she lacks the intelligence to know that she should be worried. Her ignorance and simplicity make her unable to imagine anything beyond her small existence, which, according to its light, is a good one. 
how can you be envious of a life like that? You misunderstand me, Carl. I'm not a bit envious of the day-to-day trappings, but sometimes I think it must be pleasant to be slow-witted enough to believe that one has everything one wants. So why are you letting Ogilvy give them a vote? I'm not letting him. I can't stop him. The wretched man is an idealist. He believes this stuff. He has convinced himself that he is a true socialist and that everyone has the natural-born right to an equal say in the democratic process. Then we help him change his mind. If only it were that simple. This isn't a matter for his mind. He believes it in his heart. In his way, he is as sentimental as that washerwoman's song. He loves the unwashed class because he's never met any of them except the forelock tuggers who keep him comfortable. He, he's, he's like a benevolent squire who looks on his tenants as children to be nurtured and improved. Exactly. If we ask people like that to think for themselves, there's no knowing where it'll end. They couldn't think for themselves, even if they wanted to. They will just fall prey to the first rackety demagogue with an ear for the lowest common denominator. Promise our washerwoman two bob a week extra and tuppence off a bottle of gin and she'll vote for you. As long as you make it too difficult to understand that you're simultaneously taking a fiver a month out of her purse and gouging the price of milk. She'll believe she's thinking for herself and happily vote against her own best interests. So how do we persuade Squire Bob that he's not acting in his own best interests? I don't think we do, Carl. Benevolent he may be, a pushover he isn't. No, don't be misled by the public face. He's a stubborn bastard with unshakable convictions. That's not ideal for a politician. And he can be bloody difficult if he doesn't get his own way. So it is an act? This husband and father to the nation, Cobblers? No, no, it's not an act. It's more of a public persona. And believe me, it's an asset. Why do you think he's so popular here? Because they think he's one of them. And that's why he doesn't want any triumphalism on this visit. Just a local boy made good. Exactly. A low-key trip home to thank the good folk of Colchester, without whom, etc, etc. You know, <laughs> he actually said to me, I'm Bob Ogilvy. Not Bodicea. I'm not sure that's going to be up to him. What do you mean? All of my research. Yeah, you mean hanging around in pubs? I was asked to survey the Vox Populi, and I'll have you know I worked some very long hours. Yeah, I bet you did. And what were your findings? Virtually everyone I've spoken to is incredibly proud. They seem genuinely to love him. Even I was in danger of finding it touching. Blimey. Are you saying there were no dissenting voices among the drinkers of Colchester? Doesn't seem like it. The few I met were far outnumbered by the ones who said, Who's Bob Ogilvy? <laughs> well, this is Essex. But the vast majority are confirmed Ogilvyites and see this as an excuse for a bloody great party. Well, this is Essex. Seriously, though, if he wants those proles out there to vote for him when the time comes, he needs to throw them a bone. Now. They deserve a bit of fun. I agree. So maybe Mr. I'm Bob Ogilvy, not Bodicea, and much more humble than you, might want to start listening to the advice his advisers are being paid to give him. The trouble is that it takes a lot of arrogance to carry off his particular brand of humility. I know exactly what he'll say. This was a victory for the party, not for me personally. This was about policies, not personalities. Besides which, if I start behaving like the president of Atlantica, the press will be all over me like the measles. This is your constituency, Bob. Where you grew up. It's part of you. You don't want the press accusing you of being too grand to share your victory with the people who made you. Oh, God. It'll play really well in Colchester. My assistant, Carl... Have I met him? Yes, several times. Right, I do meet a lot of people. Yes, Carl's meticulous and wholly scientific research indicates that you are a much-loved local hero. This is precisely the kind of talk that I don't want. But it's the voice of the people. 
Not just the ones who voted for you, but those who haven't yet had the chance to vote. I do know what you're trying to do, you know. It won't wash. I'm not trying to do anything. I'm simply telling you that people in Colchester are happy for you personally and proud that you're one of their own. And yes, they want to have a bit of fun. Bread and circuses. Nothing wrong with either. Carl also reported that countless responders to his survey said it's brilliant that he comes from here. He's really put Colchester on the map. What a ridiculous phrase that is. As if it hasn't been on the map for a thousand years. I can't put a place on the map any more than I can wipe it off one. Carl's report goes on to say that the regional party machine is keen to let the locals know how much we appreciate them. There's never a guarantee that local elections will go the same way as general elections and that some festivities would almost certainly have a positive impact on the polls in the long term. Colcestrians are excited to welcome you back and wish to express their happiness and celebrate with you and mark the victory of common sense in our nation after 20 years in the political doldrums. You really are a manipulative bastard, aren't you? My pleasure, sir. (sighs) Very well, but for God's sake, keep it tasteful and as muted as possible. Otherwise the press here will crucify me. Leave the press to me. Meaning? Leave the press briefing to me. Good grief, Benson. This is precisely what I wanted to avoid. I'm going to look like the dictator of some banana republic reviewing his troops. People want to celebrate a new era of English socialism. This isn't all about you. And in this new era, will it be acceptable for the Prime Minister to punch his special adviser in the face? Oh, I wouldn't have thought so. Carl? Yes. Here a minute. Bob wants to punt somebody in the face. Brace yourself. Is everything not to your liking, oh mighty leader? Don't push it. Look, we know this isn't your thing, but people here are genuinely excited. Let them have their moment. A lot of the folk out there didn't have the right to vote for you, and they're still turned out. Besides which, Mike Peters wants his picture in the papers. I might have known he'd try to muscle in. Oh, he's been very busy telling anyone who listened that you couldn't have done it without him. Can I punch him in the face? Prime Minister assaults leader of Colchester Council. Not such a great headline. Meg! Hello. Are the children with you? They've gone up to the council chamber. I think they're pretending to stage a show trial. (laughs) Chips off the old block. Morning, Margaret. Morning. Now, just to confirm that you and the children will be joining Bob on the balcony when he makes his speech. Yes, I've already said so. Thank you. We know you'd rather stay away from the spotlight, and we respect that, but today of all days... I've said yes. You don't need to go on. My apologies. You know what it means to me, Meg? Bob! Mike, how lovely. Meg, you're looking lovely as ever. Isn't this wonderful? Yes, wonderful. Now... Bob, I was a little disappointed that you were unable to find the time for a powwow prior to today's shindig. The council strongly feels that getting you here was very much a team effort, and we like to think that you won't forget our contribution. Oh, you won't be forgotten. We're very excited about the future. I mean, you've really put Colchester on the map. We were very much hoping that this will lead to some much-needed inward investment. 
I can't give Colchester preferential treatment. Well, naturally. Uh, that having been said, we predict that there will be a spike in visitor numbers, and we must ensure that the infrastructure is in place to accommodate them and to show that our town is a great and welcoming holiday destination. I was hoping to announce one or two capital projects in my speech. Your speech? As council leader, it naturally falls upon me to say a few words of introduction. I don't think Bob needs any introduction. And you certainly can't be announcing any capital projects without consultation. Sorry, you are? The person who's telling you that you can't be announcing any capital projects without due process. Bob, we're old friends. Are you going to let this, whatever he is, talk to me like that? Mike, it's very kind of you to offer to introduce me, but really... I prefer to keep this as low-key as possible. Just Meg, the children and me. By the way, it's nearly time. Carl, would you mind going to get the kids? I'm on my way. And obviously, Mike, once we've got this out of the way, I'll be glad to meet the council. Good. We've worked very hard to make today a success. I do think, however, that it sends out the wrong message for me not to introduce you. People expect it. I am one of your oldest friends. Which is why I know you'll understand. Very well. I'd better go and make the best of it to the council. Oily little bastard. Right. Let's get this out of the way. Benson, will you give us a moment? Of course. Thank you for doing this, Meg. Bob, I'm not a complete monster. I'm proud of you. I wouldn't miss this for the world. I love you. And I love you, you silly ass. Just... Just what? Just come home as often as you can. We miss you. Here they are. (laughs) Who were these handsome devils? (laughs) What have you done with my children? You look so smart. Are you ready? Come on, then. Thank you so much. What a magnificent welcome. It's so wonderful to be home. I could feel all the tension and worry of the election campaign lifting from my shoulders the closer I came to my hometown. And all my friends, both old and yet to be made, in this amazing town. Everything I am and everything I will be is because of you. I am and always will be proud to call myself a Colcestrian. Damn, he's good. It's because he really believes it. Also, it takes a lot of practice to be as off-the-cuff as that. You've briefed him well. I have. And I've made it clear that he must on no account announce universal suffrage. So... Any minute now. Then our hands are tied. He is the boss. Nineteen fifty-four is a packing shed production written by Patrick Marlowe and Neil Darcy Jones. Playing the various characters are Richard Conrad, Neil Darcy Jones, Grace Dunn, Tim Freeman, Ben Jacobson, Charlotte Luxford, Patrick Marlowe, and Kate Milner. Music is by At Swiffin's Edge, and the series is recorded and edited by Michael Parker, courtesy of Studio Six Music. <laughs>